Uh, first week of the rainy season retreat is almost over. Time is flying. And we shouldn't miss out on the opportunity of making merit, making punya, generating good karma. And traditionally, the vasa, uh, the rainy season, is a time for the monks to intensify their practice as a time for the nuns to intensify their practice, but uh, it is also a time for male and female lay practitioners to uh, push their Dhamma practice to a new level. This is a time to make resolutions, adetana. Adetana is considered even one of the pavamis. So it's strongly recommended to find a good resolution. For example, when you normally come once a month to the monastery, you may want to make a resolution that in the rainy season retreat you come once a week. Actually, I remember when I was the first time in uh, in Perth in the monastery, First Vasa in 1998. There was one Vietnamese family who came every single day in the rainy season retreat, except one. It was some important thing they didn't manage for one day, but else they came every single day. I couldn't. E- I could even notice it because uh, one of the the gentlemen had uh, lost a few fingers. So when even if you're downcast eyes when you're receiving the rice offering into the bowl, you notice there's one hand, a few fingers missing. And after a week or two, I noticed this guy is there every single day, and so is his family. Very impressive, and that monastery is 60 kilometers outside of the town. Now, if you have any precepts which are not your favorite... (laughs) Some people have favorites among their five precepts. Some they keep, others they don't keep so well. So uh, we should be in the even, not having favorites or the precepts. It's good to keep. Uh, the rainy season retreat is a good time to clear that up. If one precept is a little bit weak, a little bit shaky, we can make a resolution that at least during this period of three months, you are totally determined that one weak precept to have it completely pure. If you're already keeping the five precepts, there's still space to sharpen the practice of virtue. How? So your five precepts are already very pure. Don't find that too difficult. How can you enhance a bit? Exactly, yeah. And how often did the Buddha recommend to keep the eight precepts? Once a year? For the full moon? Yes, the four quarters of the moon. Some people think just for the full moon. But the original recommendation is for all the four moon phases. Full moon, new moon and the quarter moons. So basically once a week. 
And what a coincidence, we are offering the eight presets here also once a week. <laughs> Every Saturday, Sunday is usually there. Yep, a few others. It is quite early at 7.30 in the morning. But uh, if once a week is too challenging, you may want to come at least once a month. Now, this is a practice one shouldn't uh, underweight. Because if one really keeps eight precepts once a week, you, know, you accumulate a long time on eight precepts. For example, when you do that for seven years and you really keep it once a week, you will have accumulated one year on eight precepts. It's very similar, or not so dissimilar from being a monk or a nun for a whole year, only distributed. There's also another advantage on keeping precepts once a week or even once a month. In comparison to a, a longer retreat, nowadays it's often more popular that people go on, say, 10-day retreats. But you may have noticed after a 10-day retreat, at least some people in the report that it's quite difficult to sustain the practice. And some people with their 10-day retreats, what's happening, they try to have all their practice, so to speak, in the retreat period. And then they come out and it all collapses again. And then they're just struggling along until they get the next chance to have 10 days on retreat. And then the meditation may be going well again. On the other hand, if you keep eight precepts once every week, then you don't have this uh, huge discrepancy between being on precepts and not, because it happens so regularly in this one day. And then you may not have you know, such a deep practice like on a 10-day retreat on that one day, but still you know, your mindfulness will be you know, sharper, your insight will be more profound, your samadhi will usually you know, deepen, and uh, there's not such a big shock to the system when you come out, so to speak, on the next day. And once a week is about 53 days a year. So there would be more than five 10-day retreats. It is quite difficult you know, to get that done, five 10-day retreats a year, and a few people manage it. But if you do it once a week, you, know, you can accumulate that large amount. If you are not regularly uh, sit or walk meditation, uh, in a more formal meditation, in a posture and trying to deepen samadhi as well, this is a time to start. Usually, uh, I would say in the 20 minutes to half an hour a day, if you really want to see some some results, so to speak. But even five minutes is better than nothing. But then the results tend to be a little bit inconsistent. But from about a half an hour a day, you can usually get very good, visible, noticeable results. So that is a great one to make as a resolution. You have to sit or walk meditation every day for half an hour or even 20 minutes.
if you're already doing that, you want to maybe increase to one hour during the rainy season retreat. Or have you ever read through the Matrimanikaya, the middle links discourses of the Buddha? One of the Nikayas, or maybe the long discourses. Nowadays, we have very good translations available. And a rainy season retreat, and I think, is a great opportunity to, to do that, or at least to get started on it. A three months, about 90 days, much in my, a little bit more than 150 suttas. So it's less than two suttas a day, even if you read only through half the thing. One sutta a day. Or have you read uh, the biography of Ajahn Chah? Or his book of the collected teachings? Or maybe Ajahn Sumedho's collected teachings? Now, this is a good opportunity. And nowadays, when you have uh, um, ebook readers, you can often have even this uh, voice reading them out for you. Are you doing that? I sometimes enjoy that. The voice still sounds a little bit artificial. It's not quite like a like a real person. But after meditation, I often don't like reading. I can notice now, that the process of translating letters into meaning via the eyes is much more indirect than uh, listening to a speech. Originally, we learned speaking from our mother and father just by listening. And it seems to be usually more direct and going deeper. When the mind is already very calm, it can be very enjoyable just to listen. And then the next day, they usually the program knows where you stopped. So you can just start it the next day and they will continue wherever you stopped. There's also nice apps around now which can uh, register how much you meditate. Have you seen those? And then uh, you, you get all the feedback. You can also determine you want to meditate half a day, an hour, and then you get a little, I think, smiley faces or little rewards if you manage that for one week or two weeks. <laughs> and then you get a feedback when you're missing out the day. I think one app can even make that public so then all your friends can see whether you actually do your resolution <laughs> when you have got you know, the effect of being shamed into having to sit because it's all your friends checking out. What? Not sitting? If you have focused on one particular posture in meditation, like sitting is good maybe to try something else, walking or standing. Or at walking, if you normally sit for half an hour, why not adding 20 minutes walking afterwards? Another way we can uh, enhance our practice is uh, regular Buddha puja. Are all of you doing at least a little puja every day? Do you at least all have a Buddha statue? Yeah? Ajanta, you do? Every day, good. When you have a Buddha statue, even if you have very little time, at least about three times, do Namotasa. 
as an absolute minimum. Because even just doing that much, and if you do that every single day, that will go quite deep into the mind. But of course, it is much nicer than to create some atmosphere. The one effect is that you make good karma by offering something to the Buddha. Now, although he has not attained Parinibbana, there's still lots of good karma in anything that you offer to him. So if you take the shrine and the Buddha statue you have there as a symbol for the Tathagata, and then you offer another flowers to him. And it's like a quite good karma, and the same with the incense. But another effect is the moment you do that, and you create a certain atmosphere. It's very good to use this little ritual to transition from worldly life to your meditation now. You may be busy at work, you're rushing home, and if you just immediately jump onto your meditation cushion, try to meditate, and it may not really work, but the mind is just still so agitated, so much momentum. But if you go through the motions of bowing, offering a little flower, some incense, putting on the candles, and then you get the fragrance, there's some reason that now all Buddhist traditions are doing that. It's very psychologically very effective. Uh, fragrance, for example, is uh, psychologically and uh, very powerful. I think that is the most direct connection into the emotional centers in the mind and the brain. I think there's no real filter from, from the uh, nerves and the nose who are um, fragrance sensitive. It goes directly into the emotional centers. So if one does it regularly, the moment you smell the incense, your mind is already dropping into samadhi, so to speak. And uh, it cuts out all the worldly distractions. And a very good thing is then to do some chanting. Do you do the chanting, Ajanta, as well? Some puja or namotasa, it be so? I mean, the, the very minimum that should know in Pali, Namotasa, Itipiso, Swakato, and Supatipano, the basic qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. It was also good to occasionally chant it in English. We have all these chanting books, and they have English translations, and there's chanting available on the website. We also have the chanting which we do on Sunday now on our Vimeo channel. And Venerable Dante Cetto has put the uh, text in, that you can actually see the text as subtitles while we are chanting here. It's a good way you know, of learning the chanting by heart. And if you read, that is okay in the beginning, but over time one should be able to do the chanting by heart. It's one of the ways how we can uh, rediscover the Dhamma in the next life. The Buddha pointed out that someone may be reborn in Devaloka, but without clear memory of the past life and exactly how they practice. And then another Deva is chanting the Dhamma, and then they suddenly recognize it. And if you have been chanting your whole life every day, these beautiful words of the Tathagata in Pali, and then you pass away in the next life, and if you hear chanting, you may spontaneously feel attracted by that. 
think quite a few Westerners have reported that, that uh, although this quite was quite quite a few Western monks, I mean, or that was quite exotic for them when they first encountered Pali chanting, they immediately had a liking for it. So you should have a good treasury of the teachings of the Buddha, which we have committed to memory by heart. The chanting is also excellent if you ever get into big trouble. Right now we still have the coronavirus globally. It is actually constantly getting worse for the last couple of weeks. There's still um, about 5,000 people dying a day, most likely underestimated in many countries. There's another outbreak in uh, Melbourne, you must have heard about. So if we are lying in intensive care and we can't breathe, or we are subdued by police, (laughs) they've got to in our neck and we can't breathe and there's something like that happening will you be able to cope or when the flights are opening up now again and you're in an aircraft and suddenly something goes wrong and the thing starts going going down any situation where our life is suddenly endangered do you have something to find a refuge in of course, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, but that is subtle. But what can we really focus on? And chanting is a very good one. If you have some Pali chants, we did all the time. That may be easier in an acute crisis situation than trying to focus on something as subtle as a breath. I mean, if you have a well-established meditation object, then this is obviously the best. But uh, Otherwise, in crisis situations, and having some chance one is doing every day, now excellent not to get the mind wholesome quickly. And then we can gradually expand. Do you know the Mahapavita, Mangala Sutta, Metta Sutta, Ratana? Uh, beautiful teachings about loving kindness, about the greatest blessing, basically a summary about practice mostly in lay life, in verse form, uh, gradual training in lay life, in verse form is the Mangala Sutta, the greatest blessings, uh, and the Vatana Sutta, describing the outstanding qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, and arousing the faith and confidence and affection towards the Triple Gem. And very important is not to calm the mind in samadhi. There is a tendency not to neglect that because our time and age is a little bit hostile to a calm, peaceful, unified mind. And we are often so busy and distracted that many people, many people find it difficult not to focus internally and unify their mind. We can't leapfrog that. We have to uh, gradually free our mind from the five hindrances and learn to settle down in a suitable meditation object like a breath, anapanasati, or like a metta meditation, loving kindness, or like a buddha nusati, 
or like recollecting your virtue, recollecting your generosity. These last two are often really uh, underrated. So how many people of the ones present here have uh, done a reflection on your generosity yesterday? Has anyone done that? A meditation reflecting on your generosity? Ah, not a single one out of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Fourteen people, not a single one has done that. Maybe the reason is that yesterday you all reflected on your virtue. You all did Sila Nusati, reflecting on your accomplishment in virtue. Also no one. Oh, you? Siolien, you did. Sadhu. We have one. Great. But one out of 14 can still be improved. And uh, for me, it's often striking because uh, I know you, everyone here, I know you are so incredibly generous and, and at least to the best of my knowledge, also incredibly virtuous. And the people come here and at 7.30 Saturday and they even take the eight presets. Why don't you want to cash in into that? It's a little bit like someone having a lot of money and not putting it to good use. Although, I mean, nowadays you don't really get much interest anyhow. <laughs> Before this very weird period, you would usually invest the money. And when you, you get interest on it, whereas otherwise the money will just be devalued from inflation. So similar, if you do all these good things, you already have the good karma for that, for sure. But you miss out on fully cashing in on the generosity you did and the precepts you keep if you're not reflecting on them. And it's a very easy and quick way to give you joy and happiness and hold some self-esteem. And it's a very good way of preparing the mind for samadhi. In particular, if it's people like like you and who I know as being so outrageously generous, there's even more good karma to be generous and then to think about it, to reflect on it. And so we have to calm and settle down the mind. And once the mind is calm and has settled down, we may not be quickly able to really attain a full samadhi. But whatever calm, mindfulness, focus, one-pointedness, and a rapture, or at least joy or contentment, we generate in our samatha practice, then it's time to make the effort and reflect and investigate and develop wisdom, develop vipassana. Sometimes people like certain aspects of the practice more. Some people may feel they're not so much into developing wisdom. They may be more into devotional practices or prefer samadhi. But the wisdom is the highest of all qualities. Nati panya samaabha. There's no light like wisdom. There's no radiance like wisdom. There's no brightness as bright as wisdom. So we have to make the effort. And a good way of developing wisdom is by 
investigating the Four Noble Truths, as we talked about in detail last last week. Investigating suffering shouldn't be too difficult. And most people complain quite a bit how they suffer, <laughs> but complaining about it is not a it's not a good approach. It makes the suffering just worse. A better approach is not to look at the suffering and try to understand it. And understanding it means not to look for the causes. The Buddha has already explained to us that the cause is the craving. So that is the connection we have to make with our mind. It's usually not so difficult to encounter some suffering. But the difficult one is then to not immediately run away or reject it, but to look at the suffering and investigate it in one's heart and in particular to look for the cause there's a craving that is generating that suffering and then the next task is to abandon that craving through developing the whole eightfold path and in a, once a mind you can clearly see the relationship between the suffering and the craving and then it will kind of autom- almost automatically let go or reduce the craving because we don't want to suffer. And then once we can clearly see this leads me to suffering, then we will let go of the thing that leads me there. Okay, so for a few suggestions what you can do for the rainy season retreat to enhance the practice. Is there any questions or any comments? How do we remove the anxiety of dying? Oh, that's a very good question. Dr. Malik is asking how do we remove the anxiety of dying? Uh, we have to first of all in, uh, investigate what are we really anxious about and usually you will find uh, that a lot is uh, tied up with the body ultimately and this is a very reason that uh, an anagami the third stage of enlightenment they will no longer be afraid of dying they have no anxiety about death anymore because the death is something that pertains to the body and the anagami has given up any attachment or identification with the body. So uh, I think the only way of really removing that, as you call it, or abandoning, overcoming the fear of death, is to uh, let go of any attachment or identification with the body. Yeah, that is another one on a more basic level. Now the, the fear is naturally greater if people have no idea what's going to happen when they die. Or even if they think there's nothing that may not be quite so frightening, uh, but it's usually not fully satisfactory and there's also the uncertainty. On the other hand, the stronger our faith, our belief in uh, rebirth, the less... Um, distraught we tend to be about dying 
there will still be anxiety. I think just by belief in, in rebirth, I don't think you can fully overcome all anxiety for dying, but it will reduce it. And in particular, in connection with lots of good karma. Uh, the Buddha once uh, explained that in a quite a beautiful simile, you know, just like in the evening time in the mountains, you know, the mountains that give these long shadows. You know, so similar in a person who has made bad karma at the end of their life, you know, they, they have some awareness of that. It's difficult to push that away. And once they notice you know, that they die in these long shadows, you know, they're overshadowing that and and the anxiety will be great. And on the other hand, if someone has made lots of good karma, this is quite a dynamic thing. Good karma is not just something that happens in the next life. Good karma is something which you carry in your heart already right now. There's some light, some joy, some happiness, some lightness in your heart right now. And I'm sure in your case, being a doctor or life and clearing out all these people's ear, nose and throat problems. <laughs> there's, there's lots of good karma. And uh, the, the mind uh, deep down uh, knows that and can feel that. So this combination of having lots of good karma, only little bad karma, and a strong conviction, strong faith in rebirth, uh, will uh, strongly reduce the anxiety of dying. I don't think it can completely eliminate it. So we also come back to what you just talked about, and it's good to reflect on that a lot. And it's good to remember it. Then the effect becomes even stronger. The other thing which is very helpful is developing samadhi. Even someone who is not an anagami, who hasn't got any breakthrough in uh, insight yet, hasn't had the eye of Dhamma arising, that whatever is subject to origination is also subject to cessation. And this insight has not yet been fully realized, but uh, supposing that person has good samadhi. I mean, even attaining samadhi only once is usually a, a big difference because then the mind has a different vantage point. And in particular, the mind is aware that without the body, so to speak, the mind is actually very happy. So uh, any progress in the area of samatha samadhi will reduce attachment to the body. And once the full samadhi jhana is attained, there's a kind of a confirmation and direct experience that the body is more like a burden and that the mind without the body is quite okay. And it also shows kind of practically, it's not the same like dying, but someone who experiences samadhi then basically notice that the mind can be without the body, and is even better. And then if this experience is deepened in deeper jhanas and is repeated, uh, then I think you know, a person with a very strong samadhi will also have virtually no anxiety about dying. What is the, the talk about the sign of the mind? The talk about the sign of the mind? Samadhi nimitta? Or? Um, which which talk do you mean? The uh, they talk about Dharma talk is to feel the sign of the mind. Uh, outside things drop off. And, 
within, totally within your mind. The, uh, the term, uh, I'm not quite sure when you refer, they, they talk about it, who exactly would that be and how in, in which sense they're using it. Uh, sometimes in um, nowadays usage, nimitta often refers to seeing a light. Many people use it in that sense. That in your uh, meditation, when you see a light, then people call that a nimitta. The original Pali meaning of nimitta is much wider and it means not sign, nor also characteristic quality. And there are sometimes quotes in the Pali Suttas where the Buddha talks about Chittasa uh, Nimitta. But then it doesn't necessarily mean a light, it just means another quality or characteristic of the mind. And uh, Hmm? Oh, yeah, yeah, good, good. It, it usually indicates uh, progress in uh, samadhi if you see lights, if you see nimitta in the sense of, of a light. And uh, the, the brighter it is and the more stable it is, you know, the um, more it can be used you know, to deepen your samadhi. It's a kind of, I would describe it as if you experience, uh, so to speak, you know, the purity of your mind there. Because you need to have a mind freed from the hindrances for attaining samadhi. And usually these nimittas come up when a person gets more like towards what is called upachava samadhi, um, neighborhood concentration. So not yet full samadhi, but uh, samadhi developing. Samadhi developing means you know, that the hindrances and defilements are weak. And it means you know, that the mind is obviously at that time you know, quite pure and bright. And, and so you experience you know, the purity and brightness of your own mind. It's usually uh, the, the best ones are usually the ones which are stable and very bright and beautiful. So you can try you know, to, to look maybe into the center where the the center is even brighter. On the other hand, one shouldn't overvalue it. Now, some people get them very quickly. Also depends a bit on the character. Now, some people get these lights and things are coming up very quickly. And some people can have a totally pure mind and they don't get much uh, lights and emitters. But in general, it uh, does indicate you know, a progress in samatha and samadhi. The, the more experience you have from that, the easier the whole process of dying will be. You may have noticed when you read these um, near-death experience where people report dying and what they experienced there, but in the end they didn't die, and they came back into their body, they were resuscitated. That has been reported throughout the history of mankind, there are examples in virtually all cultures. Sometimes people... Those days, often they would have them for the funeral. They would keep the body in the whole week. And then sometimes people coming back now after several days. Our cultures here reports. But in our time and age, because of the, the techniques of resuscitation in hospitals, uh, there are many more cases like that. And by now, there's a very considerable body of evidence and literature of what people report. And one thing which is often reported is you know, the light experience. And often it's more like you know, they're going through a kind of tunnel and they see a light in the distance and they feel you know, that they're floating towards the light or falling into the light. 
And they usually they have no extremely positive uh, connotations with that light. And if you, uh, this is a, what I say, in a place of uh, safety, security, and release. Of course, depending on their religious view, they may identify the light with um, some of their religious background, maybe as God or as Jesus or as Mary or as a prophet or whatever. And as a Buddhist, you can simply recognize as the purity of your own mind. And you can imagine if you have already some experience in your meditation in going towards the light, and it's actually a very similar process how some people describe in attaining samadhi. And it will be much easier when you die. Because what often happens in the near-death experience, you know, the light is so beautiful and they love it so much and they're so happy to go there, and the next moment they're somewhere else. Why is that? And this light is so beautiful and so alluring and so attractive. And why do they suddenly find themselves in some different scene? Hmm? A tanha, craving. Now, although their light is so beautiful and they like it, it's the same like in meditation. Then comes up some sensual thought, some thought of aversion and Although the light is so beautiful in your meditation, we still make the mistake that we get uh, pulled away. But if you can go towards the light, so to speak, now, even when you're still in your body alive, which is much more difficult, you can imagine that uh, the pose of dying is a unique chance for a great breakthrough. This can maybe also reduce anxiety about dying, just like uh, diligent practitioners, they often look forward to retreats. Monks are often looking forward to the veins retreat. Oh, no more projects, you can meditate. Or people going on a 10-day retreat, they really look forward. And so similar, if you are a real practitioner, you can almost look forward to the process of dying as one last chance, so to speak, in this life. Or in the transition to the other life and for a big breakthrough. It's so difficult to let go of the body. But when you're dying, you've got no choice and you get forced out of the body. So that is a huge support for the whole practice. And if you maybe couldn't quite do it in your meditation now and you're going into the light, at that time that you may be quite successful and you may be reborn straight in Brahmaloka. But even that is not yet you know, the best. You know, the best would be you know, to uh, also have an inside breakthrough and, and, and realize the Dhamma and the poor at the time of dying. So reducing anxiety is you know, obviously for reducing anxiety about dying. So uh, first of all, as you mentioned, you know, faith in rebirth, conviction in rebirth, and lots of good karma. And then when you're on your deathbed, you feel actually quite at ease, maybe not physically, but the mental anxiety will be in a very minor, or you may even be happy, because instinctively, deep down, you know you go to a good place. But if you have experience in samadhi, even better. And if you're a Dhamma practitioner, then a time of dying isn't even a great chance for a major breakthrough. And ultimately, the anxiety about death is abandoned for an anagami, the third stage of enlightenment, uh, the moment when they have given up all 
attachment and identification with the body. So good, good luck with that, but, but not too early. The monastery still needs you, Dr. Malik. <laughs> Don't get too keen on <laughs> doing an important job here. And it's always good to have still some more good karma. Yes, Mamuni. Rukmani is asking for the sake of the podcast. Rukmani is asking if you do some good deeds, is it all right to um, wish that due to that you be reborn in a good place? That's not only okay, this is what should be done. It should be done. And I always say it's, it's a little bit like having money is one thing, and then how you spend it is a different thing. And both have to go together. So if you want to accomplish something, and uh, but you have no money, you can't really do anything. If you have lots of money, but you're not spending it in a good way, then you also will not accomplish a lot. So all you got karma is like the, the money you have and these resolutions, these determinations, these aspirations, that is uh, directing how you spend it, so to speak. And if you don't make a deliberate resolution how to use all our good karma, it will usually just go to our normal natural desires. Everyone wants to be maybe uh, healthy and uh, maybe famous and uh, attractive. There's nothing wrong about being healthy, long-lived, famous and attractive. But uh, there's better things. And being... Uh, calm, peaceful, virtuous, and wise is more important. So your future will be determined by two things. What is your karma? Second, what is your aspirations? And if both are there, then your aspiration will become true. And if someone has lots of good karma, and it's all spent because they so desperately want to be rich, so I may end up next life as the richest person in the world. It's maybe not wrong, but in dumber terms, what's the point? There's maybe even just the danger that you just get you know, carried away by that. You're not necessarily even happy rich people. Whereas another person may have a similar good karma, but their whole aspiration was being virtuous, being in association with wise people having a sharp mind and Dhamma understanding and being in connection with Dhamma. And they may be born in a fairly uh, simple, even poor family in a little village. But you know, the parents may be in a very wise and very uh, devoted Dhamma practitioners and they get that from a young age. And then they you know, meet maybe outstanding monks, you know, like Lumpur Tate, who was you know, already as an eight-year-old and you know, sometimes walking a few days you know, with the most outstanding forest monks in that time. And he was born from, from simple village somewhere there, Thailand, northeast. But obviously so much good karma, and then you've got this association with these people, and then maybe you have the good karma of 
uh, wanting even to ordain at a young age and doing that. And then your good karma is used up for that kind of thing. So it's really important to make a resolution. Each time when we make good karma, we should do these resolutions. But you have lots of good karma, so now is the time to decide how you want to spend that. What is really important, having a hundred grandchildren would be a nice thing. Ne? If that is what one likes, and you have lots of good karma, you, you may be able to achieve that. If you have got ten kids and each of them have another ten, No one can achieve that, no, but in, in, in Dhamma terms, it's not, this is just one example, you know, what people may like, you know, being rich is another one, and being famous, no, this is all about fame. Everyone, uh, the Instagram followers, and how many on Twitter, and how much sharing, and what's the point in that? So the resolution helps you to direct your good karma into something of Dhamma value. 